Okay, thank you. Yes, um, I'm Fenella Griffin. I'm a landscape architect, and I am a partner in a practice called Untitled Practice. And um, it was Chris Martin who invited us to contribute to the journal back in the summer. And we found ourselves reflecting on the work we're doing and the work we've been thinking about. And what we describe in the journal, in the article, is what we think is the call of our times, which is a call to integration, both societally and spatially. So that's a big, a big task for us all to consider in our work. But it feels as though it's, it is the time of needing to bring things together more um, across, across our built environment and out with into the rural landscape as well. So that's kind of the, the, the substance of what I'm going to talk about. So one of those strands is through green infrastructure. And I think green infrastructure is probably best summarized by ASLAS, that's the American Society of Landscape Architects statement, that sort of typifying the valuable services that nature provides the human environment. And I think it's significant that at this point in time, we're needing to think about landscape and urban environment in that way, in that the services that land can provide humans, because um, I think it's really saying that our own survival and resilience as a species, our own human health, is actually interdependent with the survival of other species, or perhaps more specifically, the systems that sustain them. So we need living land in living cities to enable us all to go forward and deal with the specific impacts that are coming related to climate change and, and having good environments. But what does that actually mean? In the way that we express and talk about our work, we've been required to shift the language of landscape to what I would describe as quantifiable assets, which have economic and other yields, which is different to perhaps the way we might have talked about our subject, say, 10 or 15 years ago. You know, we're all familiar with the terms green and blue infrastructure and the drivers that you know, are coming through those of community health and well-being benefits, the delivery of ecological services. But what does that actually mean? It really means driving down greenhouse gas emissions, improving air and water quality, encouraging better public health and preparing for the impacts associated with flooding and urban heat island effects. So it hasn't... It's not new, is what I think is the case. Green infrastructure is actually in the cultural zeitgeist, and it has been for probably more than a century. If you think about uh, the sort of founding fathers of landscape architecture, um, Frederick Law Olmsted, for example, this, his son and his son's partner, Olmsted and Huntingdon, in 1930 produced this plan for Los Angeles, which was talking about the city and the region and how do we interconnect those two things. So setting out this vision for a from the mountains to the sea, connecting up through the natural systems of the city and what became defined as parkways to kind of enable those natural resources to be available to everybody. But that didn't happen because of politics back in 1930. Um, and that's been picked up, I mean, we're, we're all working with this now, but it's been picked up by the Conservation Fund in um, Los Angeles and they've sort of renewed that and they've extended this idea of the kind of emerald necklace using the, the creeks, canyons, waterways to connect up to the national parks, um, both the Santa Monica Mountains um, and the Los Angeles Nat Nat National Forest, and connect down to the, the, the seafront. Um, so we can start to see that there are, there are underlying conditions to landscape that 
are there and that we actually need to join in with as designers to facilitate and enable. And of course, all of this has been picked up by the planners of Freiburg, for example, who use this idea of green fingers to structure the city um, and create kind of natural recreational um, opportunities for wider access to nature and city. Um, this is in downtown Houston. This is a project by SWA Landscape Architects, which looked at the Buffalo Bayou, which was a creek that ran through the city. And the area between the two red markers is a kind of section that they was sort of addressing downtown and starting to approach the city. But it's one of, one of the things that I think we're probably all becoming more involved is in retrofitting natural systems within the city and trying to bring back into play redundant spaces. So this is one of, one of those corridor systems, and that's actually what green infrastructure is based on, the corridor concepts that came out of the greenways movement that started in America sort of back in the 70s and 80s as a kind of way of forming critical habitat connections. But now, I think green infrastructure offers us um, a much more expansive concept because it's tying into sort of mosaic parts, including forest, fen, marsh, um, things that we know deliver ecological services as well as other benefits. So in the section that they started to look at, they regraded all the banks, brought back the, the riverine riparian um, vegetation, turned dead spaces into positive spaces, and connected everything up, working with the local microclimate and the areas that would be shade and the areas that would be in sun. There's a before and after of how the, how the bayou, the creek was, and how it is now, with sort of multimodal forms of sort of transit for cyclists and pedestrians, and a kind of quite a, a, a large campaign of, of tree planting bike trails that take you right into the center of the town. And new businesses have opened up renting kayaks and canoes to people you know, for exploring and recreational and educational opportunities. And that just enables something much more, something much more than the sum of the parts, which is kind of a greater response from community and spaces to live out the lives that we have to live. So just another example of that, and perhaps an even more extreme example of the degradation. This is um, Turinscape's project in Chenan City. It's the San Li River, which had become sort of extremely toxic and degraded after decades of steel industry. And the plan just shows the kind of three sections of the river, well, it's a spur of the river actually, as it goes through Chenan City. And this is what it had become. It had just become a kind of wasteland and a rubbish ground. And it's been brought back into play through riverine restoration, ecological principles being played out through the whole corridor, which enables new forms of recreation, as well as cleansing of water, new meeting places, new opportunities as the river widens and, and leaves the city. So it's something quite astonishing, which was actually achieved in, I think, just two years. Um, one of the... One of the aspects of green infrastructure, which I think is probably more advanced now in the States than it is here, but hopefully we're catching up, is that we should all have, every city should have a green infrastructure plan and a kind of way of rolling out that, a plan of action. And Philadelphia has one such, so does New York City, and, and you can go to their links through the ASVA website. But just to compare, and it's all in dollars, so you just have to kind of hold that, but 
In comparison to grey infrastructure, green infrastructure costs $1.2 billion over 25 years compared to $6 billion. Um, it, can, it can create an absorption of CO2 equivalent to £1.5 billion annually. In Philadelphia, they're creating 250 green jobs a year through that. They're avoiding 20 deaths due to asthma and also deaths um, due to excessive heat. 250 deaths are avoided over 20 years, which is quite phenomenal because once we get to 29, 30 degrees Celsius, I think that the index of, of death increases quite substantially. So there's a lot that green infrastructure could do, can address urban heat tiling and sort of bring down that effect within cities. And we know that's going to happen and we know that we need to be preparing for it now. But quite perhaps astonishingly, the, the economic benefits of green infrastructure can be quantified. And Philadelphia is saying that $390 million in increased property values over 45 years. And it's, for me, that starts to suggest something about how we can answer the current pro problems we have. We're living in times of austerity. We know that there are massive cuts coming further especially to delivering parks and other kind of services. But they're not statutory services, and if just some of this money could be offset and redirected, perhaps you could set up new models of management for securing the long-term future of these spaces in our cities. So it's just something to bear in mind. And in fact, Nesta produced a report about new models of management in 2013, and we need to be cognizant of this because as we plan these spaces, we need to know that they're going to survive. So one of the aspects is that we're approaching tipping points and obviously there's always an opportunity in a crisis. And this is from the Room for the River project in Holland, which many of you will know. There are 30 projects all scheduled for completion by the end of 2016. This is one between um, the, the towns of Lent and Nijmegen. Nijmegen sits at the bottleneck of the River Vaal. As you can see on the first image, the, the green line is a, um, the dike system that protects Lent. Um, the plan, but the problem is that Nijmegen is subject to floods, and in, I think it was 1993, it almost had catastrophic floods, but it took till 2006 to actually start to do something about it as they kind of coordinated. But they've actually, they're in the process of rebuilding the dike further inland. That enables them to excavate a four kilometre long ancillary channel to open up and make space for the river, producing a new green space for the city which becomes a kind of an, an urban nature reserve and with other urban focal, focal points and then connecting that back to the city. So I think that was the drawing that won the competition and that was um, from H&S Landscape Architects. So you can see that and then a visualization of the same. So this is happening across the Rhine Delta, which is at that kind of cutting edge. And I think the Dutch have been ingenious in their ability to start to think about this and plan for it and absorb these issues. And there it is in construction. They're excavating the channel. Um, and I think it's going to be finished at the end of 2015 this year. Another example of this is the threat to our coastlines. As you're probably all aware, we're losing salt marsh at quite a significant rate as sea levels rise and they're set to rise further. One of the things we can do is make other sacrificial acts. We can let land go. That's already happening in the UK with managed retreats. So if we can create new salt marsh, we can actually buffer those tidal surges and the storm events. 
and reduce, I think it's the velocity of the waves and the height of them by about 20%. But they're obviously not just storm defenses, they're, they're significant recharge zones for our hydrological system and networks. They're fish nurseries, it's where fish come to spawn often. But they're also a huge recreational resource. So this is on a big scale. This is by Bureau Harrow, another Dutch practice. And that's their vision of that reconstructed salt marsh that provides the new protection and protection for the urban centers along that coastline, um, which is in Friesland. And then a student project from Christoph Giro's unit at ETH Zurich, where they're exploring similar problems. Um, it's about sort of um, protecting the delta, but by again sacrificing land we can make space for the water by relaxing the pumping regi regimes within the polder landscapes. We can have some kind of coexistence, but it requires a giving up of something that we had before to enable this new, these new models to emerge. So I'm just going to turn to some of our own work. Um, this is um, a sort of an icon of the, one of the projects we've been doing in the recent years. Um, this is for Design for London. Um, it's a connection between Tottenham High Street and the um, Tottenham Marshes in the Lee Valley Regional Park. The idea was to create a new pedestrian and cycle-friendly route that connected the marshes with the high street and enabled migration of species along that, both human and otherwise. Um, but using a system of rainwater collection, recharging that through swales and rain gardens, and allowing that marshland landscape to come up and take a hold on the high street. And what that would create is a kind of river of flowers and a biodiversity chain, which would help pollinators. And I think this thinking is all underpinned, and that was part of the ALG, or an ALGG project within the All London Green Grid. But all this thinking is underpinned by, I think, the rhizomatic structures that probably arose out of the early work um, of the 1960s um, of design with nature with Ian McHarg's work, which is, I think has informed my generation of landscape architects and has informed the making of the ALGG. It's a kind of spreading system that is about creating the connectivity within the city that enables these systems to thrive. So in an area that we're also working in, in Thamesmead in southeast London, which is a flood a former marsh and a flood risk area. Um, we're, we're looking at one of the critical connections between Lesness Abbey Woods and the Crossness Pumping Station on the, on the riverside. Um, that takes us through an area of 1970s development, which is Thamesmead. This is a kind of mapping of those connections of routes and development. And then the network of open spaces that interconnect with those, that network of routes we're actually working specifically within this very thin line that goes up to the lake and then crosses the Ridgeway, which is the South, um, South London's sort of equivalent of the Greenway and Baselgate's sewer system that links in with the Victorian Crossness pumping station. But this is what we have come to. This, this route is it's actually an escape route from the marshes, which goes through the brutalist architecture of the Thamesmead um, development which is denuded and degraded. And I think that's what a lot of us are finding, that we're working in these situations where things have just been le left and there's no money to manage them or, or sustain them. So that we have a damaged landscape with inappropriately planted trees, um, 
We have travellers' horses grazing on the site that makes it often unusable for other park users, so it isn't really a park anymore. And we're also working with time. We're working with the sort of ancient landscape of the woodland up on Lesness, around the abbey. We're working with the um, old military site from Woolwich Arsenal in the marshes with all the tumps where the munitions were stored. And we're working with the 1970s development of Thamesmead and the Victorian development of the pumping station. And we try to understand that and unpick the system of network of routes and interrelationship between all of those different zones. I don't know if you can see that, but draw out of that the essential kind of framework and then rethink it as a kind of dendritic system that can bring people as well as species along that corridor and out into the wider marshland landscape. And that at the moment we're working up proposals, the very tip of this as it addresses the lake is about to go on site this week. But we're, we're converting, or we will do one, phase two is also delivered about nine hectares of immunity grassland to species-rich meadow, as well as bringing down the woodland feel of Lesnes Abbey Woods, distributing it through the corridor and integrating new access, making it more possible to actually use this space and interconnect um, with play and other facilities and a new public square as it addresses the edge of the lake. And that's sort of phase one in a rough sketch model, sort of starting to describe those proposals. And at the same time, we're working with urban movement in Brighton. Um, Brighton has been designated um, Britain's first biosphere, urban biosphere reserve status through UNESCO, which reflects the kind of amazing wealth of the landscape up on the downs, the countryside, the, the marine environment, the very particular nature of the chalk downland which sustains all of that, and obviously the city that exists, Brighton Hove, that sort of mediates those two worlds. So we're working within that context of a UNESCO biosphere reserve. In Valley Gardens, which is the strip of space which reads, as you come down off the A23, feeds down through Brighton and onto the seafront and the pier. But what we found is really a strip of space which we couldn't see the gardens. The gardens were lost to the reading within the valley floor. They have been disconnected from each other. And they really serve as a chain of kind of traffic islands with a four-lane road on one side and a two-lane road on the other. But at each end, we have the pavilion and also at the north end, St. Peter's Church, which is a grade two star listed building. And that corridor of space as it comes down through picks up um, the pavilion and past that to the old Steen and on out to the seafront. So it's about one and a half kilometers of, of public realm that we're working with. And this diagram is just sort of talking about how things have been severed, how you can't really cross either north to south or east to west without a, a whole series of barriers. And what we're trying to do, working with urban movement, is to connect the place back. It's almost like the fault line through the bottom of the valley. We need to stitch back the east and the west side of the city to become in integrated through, through the system of the park system. We need to close down the spaces between the independent garden spaces and make it feel like a linked park system and enable pedestrian movement up and down and across and along through the corridor. 
In searching for the valley, we, we realized that we needed to look at the whole watershed, and we, we searched for the chalk streams that define that valley system, and we found them up on the downs in the spring line emerging from the chalk. But in the, in the valley floor, they're not present, and that's because they've been subsumed within the Victorian sewer network. And we wondered if that might give a clue to how to start work with, to work with what was a marshy landscape um, and bring some of that back into, into the park system. And that's, those springs were sacralized up on the downs and sort of held to be sort of precious in the way that they have been sort of held so part of the design team included Richard Allis Associates, who are consulting hydrologists, and they did a modeling study of the whole of the watershed of Brighton. And I'm just going to show you a series of about, I think it's about 12 slides, that go through a very significant rain event. So it's the one in 100 year storm, which is very unlikely, but it's the kind of level of flood risk that could impact, and it's probably consistent with some of the flooding in 2007 and the Somerset levels type of flooding. So it's, it's unlikely, but it could happen. It could happen twice in 50 years. It's not necessarily going to happen once in 100 years. So it's been raining for an hour now, and I think these, the, the series go through about 20-minute sequences. So you can see the build-up. Water starting to gather up above Valley Gardens. The yellow is about 15 centimetres deep. Areas of pink are about 50 centimetres deep. So you can see it's starting to flow down along the roads into the valley. The violet is 75 centimetres depth of water, which is beginning to accumulate. And now it's starting to surge. And this is all within about a three-hour period converging at the level at the head of at the north end of Valley Gardens and beginning to come down through. So where you see patches of brown, that's over a meter. And now I think we've got the full sense of the inundation and it starts to subside. So while this is a kind of extreme event and one that we can't really plan for in great detail, we can do something to offset most rainstorm events. The sewer system here is designed for about the one in 40 year return. But we can integrate into that other systems that will help to offset maybe a one in 30 year storm or the one in one or the one in 10. And what we have as a result of both the work of Urban Movement and ourselves and the whole design team is a kind of rationalized plan for Valley Gardens where the street section is closed down on the west side, going from four lanes to two lanes, taking buses only, and on the east side, a two to three lane, where necessary, um, car only um, corridor. And that makes more space for um, streets into which we can integrate new planting, tree planting, swale planting, um, and verges and make more space for people and businesses. And so there's an idea of how that might be outside St. Peter's Church across the east side street section with widened verges, cycle routes on both sides off-road off and street swales where appropriate integrated amongst loading, parking and bus bays.
And then th th we've come to this through a kind of layering. We also allowed for an exceedance route which crosses the garden. So in the worst case scenario, we're, we're hoping we might be able to take water from the east carriage, the west carriageway over to the east and let it go out to sea and therefore avoid the worst flood risk scenario. So this is um, the idea of lawns arriving in valley gardens with a route tacking up through the centre leading from south to north. To that we add meadow areas and perennial gardens and rain gardens and community gardens, street swales and water features, the existing tree canopy is mapped in, which part of that is the National Elm Collection, which is unique to Brighton as having been, been able to protect its elm trees from the worst sort of ravages of Dutch elm disease. So we're working with the legacy of that and trying to plan a new legacy, which means planting new disease-resistant elms within the streets and the park. Sorry, that's just jumped. Oh, no, it's okay. And just to sort of pause on that, the benefit of thinking about trees as part of an urban forest is quite broad. They improve land values. They obviously produce oxygen. They remove greenhouse gases and store carbon. They address the urban heat island effect by lowering the ambient temperatures. They intercept particulates affecting respiratory health. They improve water quality. They provide erosion control and they also provide physical and psychological health benefits. So if we're trying to quantify the effects of greening the city and tree planting, we can start to do that by looking at the services they provide. So carrying on, into this we're adding um, the new tree, street tree planting, and then some arboretum tree species as well, to think of it, the whole network as a linear arboretum, and that's that. And then another system, another layer of tree planting, which follows the, the idea of the recreated chalk stream as a, as a new feature within the gardens that sort of help draw the whole thing together. And there's an idea of it coming from the south towards the university with new layering of trees within the existing structure and lawns as event spaces as well as sort of social spaces. A new setting for the entrance to the pavilion with the reduction in carriageway providing space for planted verges and rain gardens where appropriate. A new public square outside St. Peter's Church instead of a car park. And the um, Value, the VERT, the valuable, Valuing Urban Realm Toolkit, which was developed by TFL, has been applied to the project, which estimates over a 15-year period an £85 million economic impact. Again, I would argue that some of that money could be redirected towards paying for parks and maintaining parks, and that £3.5 million of that um, would come through health and social benefits from an improved quality of life and environment. So I think there's a real business case that we can apply to our projects that can help them to stack up as demonstrating their viability and somehow leveraging finance to help support what seems to ail our, our, our urban parks and spaces. And we need to find new models along which to affect that. 
One of the things I think we need to look at more, and I know that people are doing it, is involving local communities more in their, in their care of their environment. And at Brighton and at, and at Tottenham, we have explored dialogues, as sort of partnership models between the Parks Department and other, other people. So for example, interested community groups, the homeless community who, who have um, a night shelter at St. Peter's Church once every week. Excuse me. Um, also schools, the probation service, the idea of the green gym and a time bank initiative where you can swap, you put in time and then you get a service from that which could be chiropody or it could be another kind of skill. So this is the kind of current situation at Victoria Gardens South which is kind of sterile, compacted and waterlogged during the winter um, parkland and we're, we're hoping to be able to use constructed soils to alleviate that but also through layering in all these different aspects that sort of came through the plan to create a much more sort of resilient, biologically fit um, park space, both for humans and, and for species. And one of the key things is the Elm Collection supports one, um, a BAP species protected butterfly called the White Letter Hair Streak. And its main source of food is Elm, the Elm, and it's where it's sort of, it's larva, um, are developed and they also need late seasons food species through late flowering plants so that's one thing that we can provide through swales and rain gardens for example and enhanced meadows and I think that is it I'd just like to sort of advocate for the integrated approach to public space design where where we can thank you <coughs>